Welcome again, everybody. It's great to be here. It's great to be back after uh, our family was away uh, last week enjoying uh, time visiting Christie's family uh, in Colorado. So we were enjoying uh, the mountain lands of Colorado. We were fishing at 11,000 feet, which is pretty cool. So that was pretty awesome. And in the mountains at her brother's cabin, it was like 60 degrees in the mountains which is just like the perfect temperature in the summer. So it was 60 degrees in the mountains, enjoying just a wonderful time uh, up there. Not to make you guys jealous that if you guys were in heat and humidity here in Baltimore or anything. So uh, like I said, we're going to continue our study. If you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And we're going to be getting to see here, as I said, kind of the transition now uh, away from Abraham and into the continuing uh, family line that, that is laid out for us uh, in this book. So before we jump in, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time to come together as a church family, uh, to lift up words of praise to you, to hear from your word, Lord, and just to enjoy uh, just being with each other. Lord, I always think about how we come together on these Sundays and, and we join with believers around the world gathering and doing the same things, hearing your word, singing your songs. Lord, some meet in fear, some meet in praise, Lord. We just are so thankful that we can come together and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Lance last week did a wonderful job kind of, of recapping the life of Abraham where we've gone so far. So remember, he was given some big promises by God. And as you heard last week, remember, he wasn't very patient, and he often stumbled through, thinking through all these promises that God had laid out for him. But he was faithful in taking Isaac to the altar, and that was his promised son. But now, as we turn the pages, life has kind of moved on for this family. As Lance mentioned, Isaac was probably a young boy during that time of being called for the sacrifice and we learn then in chapter 25 now that he is 40 years old. I can kind of relate to that. I'm 40 years old. So as he's going through this, we see that maybe 30, depending on how old you think he was at that time, maybe 30, 25 years has gone on since those last chapters. So here we come to this section today. And as you look at this, I want us to think on three things. So we're going to work our way through these two two chapters, and there's going to be three things. There's a lot of stuff in here, but I'm going to focus on just three things. We're going to look at the importance of being equally yoked. We're going to look at the idea and the foundation that prayer plays in these two sections. And then we're going to look at the danger, the danger of giving things in for temporary satisfaction, for giving things up just to seek a moment of pleasures. So as I said, as we reach these chapters, Isaac is 40 years old. And like most parents, when their son is around them and they're 40 years old, they say, you know what, it is time to get married and get out. <laughs> I was married way before 40, mother. All right. So, but just kidding. That is not what Abraham was thinking. But he is thinking that now he needs a, a wife for his son. He knows that his son was the child of promise, but now there's more promises, and in order for these promises to continue, he must get married so that his family line can continue. 
The one thing I think we see in chapter 24 is a different Abraham than the one that we've seen struggling through these early chapters with this idea of faith. So let's jump on in to Genesis chapter 24 and see what God has for us. It begins and it says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Mom. No, I'm just kidding. She's not here. Uh, then that, see, when I go off script, it's when I get in trouble. All right, stick to the script. She's back with the kids anyways. All right, now Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of the household, who was in charge of all that he had, he said, put your hand under my thigh. I want to stop there for a brief little second and think on this. And I just want to say how glad I am that promises are are no longer made in this way. And in fact, when you get into this a little more in a lot of commentaries, some move it a little bit higher than the thigh to the area of the loins, thinking about the family line being carried on. One commentator said this is similar to the day of, of raising our hands in promise. And I'm just going to say I am a lot more happy that we raise our hands of the right hand and make promises to those. Well, now that I've completely lost you for the message, uh, let's continue on in in verse 3. I just, you get to that point and you're thinking, what is going on here? Hands under thighs uh, for promises. So this is what he says. He says that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. See, Abraham knows now that his his son needs a wife. And the promise cannot continue until this wife is found, but he has one instruction. He says, don't find this wife for my son from the people surrounding us from the people who are living in Canaan. But why not? What's the big deal if he were to find a wife from this land of Canaan? Well, remember back to Genesis 9. We did that quite a few weeks ago. And we're in the story of Noah and his sons. And remember, in Genesis 9, Ham commits some some great sin against his father. And as part of that sin, there is a great curse upon his descendants. It says that Ham would have a son, and his son would be Canaan, and that Canaan would be cursed, while the other sons of Noah would be blessed. Canaan was a cursed people. The land of Canaan at this time, remember, was full of sin. It was full of false gods. Think about the story, as we saw, of Sodom and Gomorrah, just the place in which they were living. He said, the wife for my son must not be found from these people. For this promised son, this promised line of ours, there was to be no foreign wife. You see, these foreign wives would be something that would become a problem for Israel. It would become a problem for them over and over again. In fact, a few chapters later, his son Esau would marry a Hittite. And it says that this relationship became a bitterness between Isaac and And Rebecca, okay, spoiler alert, there's the the marriage that's about to happen. But as you look at this, here's what it is. His own son goes and marries a Canaanite, and it says it brings a bitterness within the family and all and causes trouble. You see, the problem with Israel marrying foreign wives isn't the fact that they are from a different country. 
Some people have falsely used these verses against intermarriage. But the issue here is the foreign gods that they serve. The foreign nations, the foreign gods that they have issues with. Listen to the words of Judges chapter 3, in verses 5 and 6. This is what it says. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took for themselves as wives. And for their daughters they gave their sons, and here's the key, and they served their gods. So as they were marrying with these other people, these foreign wives, they became part of their family, and then a part of that became their gods. And instead of serving the one true God, they intermarried and they started following these false gods. We think about King Solomon and his great reign, the son of David. But it says this about his downfall. It says, Now King of Solomon loved many foreign wives. And it gives a whole list, pretty much the same list we just saw. And then in verse 2 it says, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. So God is laying out this warning to them. And this is many years even after Abraham and Isaac. And he's saying, look, I know the problems it's going to cause for you. Don't go after these foreign wives because they serve false gods. And these false gods are going to turn your heart away from me. That you're going to be blinded by love. And that's what it says, it says in the end. It says Solomon clung to these in love. And they served their gods. They turned their hearts after these foreign gods. And as you look at the history of Israel, what leads to their downfall and their exile is some of these very things. Drawing them away from the love of God. Drawing them away from the person who led them to this promised land. And you see, this is an important principle that, that is carried over into the New Testament. It's the idea of being unequally yoked. And, and Paul, when he is writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 18, he says this. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He's comparing these things and he's saying, Look, as believers, as we think about the way in which we handle ourselves in our relationships, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, is this person a believer? This is something I teach at youth group very often. In fact, there are many teens who are in the youth group currently who the first question I will ask if they tell me they're dating somebody, I will say, are they a believer? Do they believe in Jesus? Sometimes the answer is not always yes. And I don't just disagree and just yell at them and scold them, but I talk about the importance of having this foundation, of finding somebody in your life who shares the same values, who shares the same direction of life. Why? Because far too often I've seen people get intermarried and they fall away from the faith. They fall away from the foundation that they have because they are led astray in all these ways. God wants believers to marry believers. It is something that is important to him. Ava and Kenzie already know. I can call them out. If they ever, well, let me say, if they ever start dating. It's not even a guarantee, you know. It's daughters. But whenever they do, the first question I will ask is going to be, are they a believer? 
the first thing out the gate in understanding what we do. See, for those that are single, we, we don't want to rush your dating life. We, we want you to take the time and find the right godly man or woman in your lives. Believers and non-believers, we, we, they live differently in the world. They hold different values, a different setting of things. And God wants us to build a healthy foundation for our relationships. So here we are going through these four, four verses and seeing the importance that God has for this. So the story continues. The servant then says, well, what if this woman that doesn't want to come back with me? And here Abraham, I think, has a great place of trust and faith. Remember, we've seen Abraham kind of on a roller coaster, right? Up and down in his faith. But I think we see here in verse 7 his response to this question. Well, what if this woman that I find doesn't want to come back with me? He says this. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham trusts in this. And he says, look, God is going to send an angel before you. Trust in this. This process is going to work. I think Abraham, probably at this point in his life, looks back on the sacrifice, almost sacrifice of his son, and seeing how God provided for him. And being able to look back on that, and he says, you know what, I see now how God has worked. I see how he has worked through all these years, and I think it develops this place of faith and trust in his life. Now, you will notice that after that, in verse 7, he does put a but. He says, but, but just in case. But I think even in spite of that but, that he still believes of what's going to happen. He knows that God has promised his offspring. He knows that God has promised these things, and he is going to fulfill all that he has. And I was almost going to make this another point, maybe point two, but I didn't quite make it a point two. But it's the idea as we look back on life and how it gives us confidence for seeing how God continues to work in our lives. I think all of us have these moments that we look back on, right? We look back in moments maybe where we were struggling, where we were having a hardship, and we spent time with the Lord, and we say, you know what? I saw how God worked then. And I know how he's going to work in the future. And I can put my hope and trust in him. So he goes through this. The servant carries out on this journey. He sets off with camels and gifts for the future bride's family. And he arrives at this area and finds a well and takes rest. Now the servant is, is kind of wondering to himself, like, how am I going to know when the right woman comes along? All of us men deal with that question, right? How am I going to know when the right woman comes along? Well, I think we see the second point that I mentioned for us today. When faced with uncertainty, he prays to the Lord. And he gets very specific with this prayer. He says, Lord, when I, when I come here, the, the woman who gives me a drink. But then he goes even further, and he says, look, the woman who doesn't only give me a drink but is also willing to give all the camels, ten camels, water as well. She is the one that you have chosen. And when you get into the language here, it's kind of the difference between a sip of water and a full drink of water. 
So maybe some woman would come along and see a traveler and give him a sip of water. But he wants the woman who is going to be generous with the water, who is going to take time. It would take time to have 10 camels drink water. Anybody have owned camels? All right, I didn't think so. But camels take a lot of water. This would take time to fulfill these. So somebody who was generous. So as the story comes along, there's this woman at the well. And she gives him some water. And then she sees these thirsty camels and gives them water. It kind of reminded me of a story that when me and Christy were early on in our dating lives. And I might have told this before, but remember, anybody remember she used to work at Cold Stone? Did I ever share that before? She used to work at Cold Stone out in Dubuque, Iowa. And every time she worked, she got a free pint of ice cream. It's pretty impressive. And you're also a broke college student, so that was really good. That was like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So here she comes. Think of it. Maybe she was coming like this woman at the well with ice cream. And I knew she was the one because she would give me ice cream over and over again. And the Lord placed it upon my life that as she had this ice cream, in the same way Rebecca provided water for this servant, Christy was providing ice cream for her future husband. Maybe not quite the same, but she was very generous in all those things. But the prayer is answered. Rebecca is here She's caring for the servants. She's caring for this. And then we find out later on that, that she is of Abraham's brother's line. So somebody who Abraham was seeking, somebody of his own kindred. Then the servant realizes that his prayer has been answered. And in verse 26, he says, The man, the servant, bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. He blessed the Lord the God of my master and Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward his master. As for me, the Lord has led me to the way in the house of my master's kinsmen. His prayer is answered. How do you feel when you see a prayer answered in your life? Right? We fall and we worship and we say, God, you're awesome. God, I can't believe in the way in which you worked I, I called out to you. you. You led me in a prayer as I was looking for direction. And I see the way that you are working. So now he goes back. So now he has to go and share now with his family, right? He just can't take Rebecca from the well and just go off. He has to go and talk with this family. So the servant travels with her back to the house. The servant explains his travels, explains the mission that he has been given. And the family can't even realize it. They're, they're just like stunned. They're like, this is clearly from God. The things that have happened, this is clearly God's leading in all this. Certainly take Rebecca to be the wife of Isaac. You see, all this is talking about this second point in the importance of prayer. You see, the servant wasn't completely sure he would find the right woman, but he knew where to start. And all this started with prayer. How many times are we in that same situation? We feel lost, looking for guidance, and realizing the place we start is prayer. I thought it was appropriate, since, you know, this whole thing is dealing with marriage, to deal with, you know, 
my thoughts and, and how I got to the place of marriage with Christy. I didn't share any of these stories with her, so hopefully she's shaking her head. All right, so here we go. So I, I have shared with you, remember, a couple of times that, that I had a prayer journal at Emmaus. And I would write my prayers out for, for two years long. I, I had this prayer journal, always writing prayers. And I have mentioned before that on the date, October 2nd, 2003, was the first time somebody by the name of Christy appeared in my prayers. And it wasn't another Christy, it was the same Christy. So I'm going over all these prayers, and I was like, whoa, what did I say? Do you want to know what I said? Does Christy want to know what I said? I don't know. We're going to find out. So here we go. So this is what I wrote on October 2nd. This is the first time she appears in this. And I say this. I said, Lord, I pray for those feelings. Now, I put feelings in quotes. So I don't know what that meant. That was a long time ago. I say, I pray for these feelings that I have for Christy. I ask that my focus would continue to be with you. And should anything come from this, that it would be your will. I was, okay, good. I was, I was like, please, somebody go all or something. And we go through all these things. And, then, and here's the thing. That sounds all great, but then the next sentence was this. So just keep us cool until whenever. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But, uh, I mean, I guess we were cool. Too. Maybe I should have put ice cream in that prayer, and I would have known a little bit better. Lord, whoever brings me ice cream, she will be the one that you have. But what you see, yeah, we're going through all this, and I'm praying these things and thinking for God's guidance in all these things. And isn't that where we want to be when we search guidance? We want to be centered in our prayers. You know, so often people will mock thoughts and prayers, and they think it as a, as a joke. But I can't think of anything more serious to our faith than to be grounded in prayer and praying for others. But are we being specific in our prayers? Here's a specific prayer that you can pray this week. Okay, everybody with me? Nod your head. All right. Say this. Lord, I need New Covenant Presbyterian Church to lose three of their last four softball games so that Faith Fellowship Church can make their way into the playoffs. Can everybody pray that for us? I appreciate it. All right, no, I'm just kidding. But no, we want to be specific in our prayers. In giving things, Lord, 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 help me get here. Lord, help me with this. Lord, Lord, guide me in this direction. And be specific. Ask him for what you want. We don't always get the things that we want. He's not just some genie. But he will answer our prayers, either with maybe a yes, a no, or maybe not yet. Remember, we didn't know how all this would work out, but Abraham was right. And God had prepared the way. Anybody remember the A-team? And Hannibal would always say that he loves it when a plan comes together. And that's what God does. He loves it when he sees his plan play out and come together through all these things. But... We get a little wrinkle in this plan. And Rebecca's family doesn't really want her to leave right away. So they say, let, let, give 10 days. Give Rebecca, give us 10 days with her before we send her off. The servant is like, no, I, look, I can't wait. I, I, don't, don't hold me. I, I need to go on to this journey. So the family decides to ask Rebecca. And is like, Rebecca, will you go? Will you leave now? Or can you wait 10 days? 
And she responds and says, I will go. What's cool about this phrase is it's the exact, almost identical phrase to the words youth Ruth will use in 116 when she says that she will go with Naomi. When Naomi is telling her to go back to her people, she says, no, I will go with you. And I found it to be interesting, two, two women leaving all that they knew behind to go for something greater, to, to go for a calling in which God had them. And what an amazing commitment it showed and trust in the Lord. So they journey back on the road to Isaac. Now, I, I, this doesn't really how I, it really plays out, but I kind of picture us now coming into a, a romantic comedy movie. And I see it, the scriptures tell us that, that Isaac is out meditating in the field. He's probably saying something like, oh, where are these camels? Are they going to come back on this journey? And he is in this field. And then off in the distance, he sees a camel. He sees multiple camels now coming, and he's fixing his eyes, and he's looking, and he's trying to see, is there a wife for me? Then on the other side... These camels are approaching, and Rebecca is looking into the field, and she's saying, where is this man that I am supposed to marry? And they get closer and closer together, and then there's an instant where their eyes lock. She comes off the camel. He comes out of the field, and they, in slow motion, run towards each other. You can see it. I can see. And they embrace in a great and awkward hug and they have found each other. Now, that's not how it really plays out. They're, they're coming in, and she actually ends up covering her face with a veil. But they know that they have found each other. They know now that they are beginning this new promise. And I love the way it ends in chapter 24. In verse 67, it says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Chapters before this, Sarah had passed away, and he was obviously still in mourning over this, mourning the loss of his mother. And now here he has this new wife who will come and comfort him and bring him new life. Here it is, and I think it's an amazing story because so many times in Genesis you hear about these patriarchs and their multiple wives. But one thing you notice with, with Isaac, he only has Rebecca. He has this one wife to continue on this line. So in review of chapter 24, we see the importance of being married to a believer, of being equally yoked with each other, somebody who will lead you by your side, be next door with you and building upon this foundation of Christ. And then we see the importance of prayer, a prayer for direction and guidance in your life. Lord, give me a drink of water and a woman who will also feed my camels. But then we come along into verse and chapter 25. And in the beginning, I'm not going to read all of this, but we see the continuing line of Abraham. We see Abraham pass away, and we reflect on that, and we think of all that we have seen from Abraham, the great father of the faith. And now here he is ending his race, to bring it in the New Testament terms, finishing his time with the Lord. 
And we see a transition now into Isaac. And we think of the way in which God is proclaimed in all of Scripture. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and as we'll see in a few weeks, the God of Joseph as well. And all these things. And as we come to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 25, we realize now that we, there's a problem in God's plan. We find out that Rebecca is barren and she is unable to have children. You know, I, I read that, I think, how many times did Isaac hear his own story? How many times were his parents, maybe around the campfire, kind of explaining how he came and the struggles that they had and how they even tried to force God's hand? What we see with Isaac is he is maybe patient. It says that he waited 25 years, 20 years. His parents waited 25 years for him. He doesn't try and force God's hand for a promised son. But instead, he continues this idea of prayer. And in verse 21, it says he prays for his wife. And I don't think maybe this is a prayer of guidance or a direction, but I think this is a prayer from a place of hurt and pain. Maybe he sees the struggles of his wife. And he says, Lord, we have a child. I know the promises that you've made for us. And he prays for his wife. And as we find out, his prayer is answered, and they're going to have twins. He was like, whoa, I didn't mean twins, Lord. <laughs> right? No, he's, he's ecstatic. Here he is, he's having twins. But we find out, that there is a sibling rivalry even beginning within the womb. This is a common theme that we see in Scripture. We see Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Seth and Mark. Whoa, oh, no, wait, not that one. Um, all those things going through this. And as we have this inner turmoil in her womb, she begins to question. She says, Lord, why is this happening to me? Anyone ever prayed that prayer before? Why, Lord? Why is this happening? We, we have some friends of the family, of Christie's family in New Jersey, the, the Cagliostros, and they had a, a baby born. But during the pregnancy, they found out that their baby didn't have any kidneys. And they knew that as they carried this baby along to term, that it was going to pass away not long after birth. And it was just this week that that happened. And he put this beautiful post on Facebook. Many people would often question God, but he said, God, I, I know that you are faithful. I, I know that I, could, I can pray for a miracle, and we are. He says, we are praying for a miracle, God. But even in the hurts, even in these moments, I, I know I need to cry out to you. And as I said, they, they ended up losing the baby not long after it was born. And those are moments, right? Moments where we would question and say, why, God? Well, what is happening here? And God explains to her what is happening. And in verse 23, the Lord answers her prayer and says, two nations are in your womb. Two people are within you that will be divided. One will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Two nations are within her womb. Two nations that for the rest of Scripture and even to today will carry out the struggles of these siblings. See, the struggle between these brothers of Esau and Jacob 
turn into the struggles between Edom and Israel. And they become a thorn in each other's side for many, many generations to come. But we see as you think back to this idea of prayer, these chapters are covered in prayer. Prayer for direction and guidance. Prayer through the hurts and the struggles of life. You see, it's God's desire that we come to him, that we bring him our needs, that we bring him our requests. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Paul, again, in Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. All these things, let our faith be rooted in prayer. All right, so then we come to this crazy birth story. So first Esau comes out. He's all red and, and a hairy body like a cloak. He's just so full of hair. Quite a way to come into this world. Then his brother Jacob comes out, and, and he's holding on to his heel. This is some crazy birth things happening here. Esau goes on, we hear, and becomes a skilled hunter. Jacob is a quiet man. Then we get some family drama, because Genesis wouldn't be complete without some family drama. We're told that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And right away we know this is not setting us up for a strong foundation. See, this sets us up for this birthright mess, and normally the firstborn goes, gets the birthright. That would be Jacob's brother Esau. The firstborn usually got twice as much as the other brothers in the family. So, for example, let's just say there's this family. Let's call them the Warners, just hypothetically. And they had three sons, okay? So, the family inheritance would be divided four ways. The oldest son, I mean, the oldest son in this particular story would get two of those four parts. The other sons would only get a single part of the inheritance. Make sense? It makes sense to me. I think it works out perfect. Um, so the oldest would also be the next one to, to guide the family after the passing. He, he would lead. Esau had all this going for him. But in a moment of weakness, he gives it all up. Let's read from verses 39 through 34 of Genesis 25. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. See, oftentimes as we think about this, we, we, we hear the story right of, of Jacob stealing the birthright. And there is some trickery within Jacob, and you know his family name, and you know his, and when stuff that happens later, trickery was something upon this man of Jacob. But Scripture also points out that Esau despises his birthright. He is willing to give it up. 
Esau comes in from a hunting trip, starving. Jacob is making some stew. He says, give me some of that. He says, well, look, I'll give you some of this, but I want your birthright. He says, I don't care about my birthright. I'm about to die anyways. I can't even believe what is happening. Give me some food. He says, swear it to me. And he swears it to him, and he gives him some stew. All this stuff, and he gives up all these things because he was hungry. Maybe his brother must have been a great cook. The smell of it. I, I want this now. Esau gave up something that he could not see for something that he could see. Esau threw away his birthright in, in a moment of indulgence to satisfy his appetite. It reminds us of the, of the strong man like Samson being physically strong but spiritually weak. Esau traded the unseen for the seen of the spiritual realm. And later, Esau would weep over the consequences of these actions. When we are tempted, when the desires of this world make us forget the promises that we have from God, we end up empty and fleeting. And that's where we need to be today. We need to not give in to these moments of lapses. We need to focus on eternity. In the New Testament, Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul? Where did it profit Esau to gain a bowl of soup and yet to lose his inheritance? What we see is somebody who only cares about the here and the now, who was dominated by his flesh. Basically, he valued the, the temporary for the blessing, instead of the blessings that were to come. See, the Word of God is full of examples of individuals who thought they knew what they wanted and were willing to exchange what they had in order to get what they wanted. You may get what you want, but you might lose what you have. I found that phrase in my studies for this passage, and it really began kind of turning the wheel in my head. And you see, we think about Judas. Judas thinks he knew what he wanted. Perhaps he wanted recognition. He was willing to betray the Savior for, for 30 silver coins. He, he got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. He surrendered everything over to that. He had witnessed so many things of Christ, so many places he had gone with Christ, but he gave it all up in a moment of maybe greed, recognition, pride, all that he had for this, even disappointment. Ultimately, he hung himself. Jesus told the story of two brothers. The younger of the two brothers demanded his inheritance. While his father was very much still alive, he wanted it, and he wanted it right now. He didn't have time to mature or to grow up or to prepare for his life. So the young man got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. And when he came to his senses as he was trying to eat with the pigs, he was so hungry and he preparing something to eat that he was ready to go home and just be a servant to his father. David saw a young woman bathing herself, and rather than looking away, he lingered, and he made a plan, and he brought her before him. Soon after that, she was pregnant. David got what he wanted, but the price was far greater than he could have ever imagined. David lost one of his mighty men, and later on that child, and David's life was never the same after that moment. His kingdom was threatened. He would lose more children. He might have got what he wanted in that moment, 
but he had given up so much. You need to be careful. Samson, he wanted personal gratification too, and it cost him more than he could have imagined. He laid his head in Delilah's lap, and she cut his locks, and soon that desire would cost him his freedom, his eyesight, and his dignity, and later on his life. They all got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. All these things go through the warnings of sin in our lives. It's a danger for us to give in to a quick desire. Don't be like Esau and give in so quickly. Our struggle with sin and temptation in this life is a big one. Esau was so quick to give it all up. Paul, in Romans 6.12, he says this. He says, Therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey its passions. To not obey these things, the desires that we have in this world. To not let them be there, to overcome those things. Remember Jesus, the one who overcame the temptations of this world. We remember those words of Paul that he will not lead us beyond what we can bear, that we can overcome the temptations of this world and God will provide a way out. In Hebrews 11, the famous hall of faith, Esau's father, grandfather, brother, and nephew are all listed in the New Testament hall of fame. Not Esau. He is nowhere to be found. Well, he is found, though in those descendants, the nation of Edom, which becomes a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. You know, as we reflect on the journey that we have taken today, it's been quite a journey through Genesis chapter 24 and 25. We have seen Abraham seeking a wife for his son, but not just any wife. One who has the same upbringing, the foundation of faith. It is a reminder to all of us who are waiting on the Lord to bring the right person into our lives. We see the importance of prayer, of prayer within these chapters, of seeking direction and guidance from the Lord. Lord, who is this woman that you would have me find? Prayers of why, God, is this happening in my life? And then finally, we see the dangers of seeking the pleasure now, of letting sin rule in our lives. Worship team, you can kind of make your way back as we begin our time to close. You see, sin... Sin was defeated on the cross. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we can't live. He died upon the cross. He took the punishment of sin that we all deserve. It was our sin that held him on the cross. It was our sin that broke him, that caused him that death that violent death upon the cross. See, then he was buried. He was buried in the grave for three days. But on that third day, he rose again from the grave. It is a victory over sin and death. It is a victory that we look forward to in heaven above so that we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? We will never be free from sin in this world But Christ and his spirit gives us freedom in this world. If you want to hear more about this gospel, if you want to hear more about Jesus Christ and all that he has done in our lives, talk with somebody around you. Talk to the leadership here. Let today be a new beginning of your life 
in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Genesis. The words that give us so many directions for our lives. That we can look back and see on the ways that you have worked through your people. Lord, help us to be seeking partners who share in a common faith that we won't be led astray by the things of this world. Help us to root our lives in prayer, to be grounded in prayer, to focus on communicating with you, Lord. And then help us to not give in. Help us to stay strong and to focus on eternity in our lives, Lord. We know you are a great God who can accomplish great things, Lord. We are your humble servants, and we thank you for all that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.